welcome to the Keen on Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest in the Kino Yoga podcast is Grisha Steffen. Grisha is the pioneer of Mysore Sala Shtanga Yoga in Berlin, Germany. He opened his studio in 2004 after quitting a successful career as a software engineer. Having graduated through a misspent youth in the Berlin party scene, he stumbled into a traditional Hatha yoga class at the time, the domain of an older German lady, and he was soon too flexible, they said. So they moved him on, recommending Ashtanga. This also came quite naturally, and he made rapid progress through the series, and he found his teacher in Richard Freeman. Indeed, Grisha teaches up to this day from Richard's principles, eloquently expounding on the elusive joys of Mulabanda and alignment. He has remained a popular and pivotal figure in the German Ashtanga scene now for coming up to 20 years. I met him many years ago at a Richard Freeman workshop and was immediately struck by his warmth as well as his earnestness. But the point of Grisha's teachings, as he would say so himself, is to use yoga as a tool, not an ends. He's deeply rooted in the philosophy of yoga and his aim now is to motivate his students off the mat as well as on. He uses yoga for inquiry into how best to apply the yamas and niyamas in daily life. Examples of this come up in the podcast discussion, namely his deep commitment to climate justice as an adamant opponent of air travel. Welcome, Grisha, to the Keenan Yoga Podcast. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm very Hi. pleased <laughs> to be here. Great to have you. Um, just give us a little general background of your uh, experience and how you got into yoga. Well, uh, Grisha's from Berlin. Yeah. Um, the first Ashtanga place in Berlin, I believe. Uh, yeah, the first Shala, you could say. There was some Ashtanga going on when I started with it in about 2000-ish. Um, there was one teacher, she taught, I think, one lead class a week or two, and she had maybe two students. And I had started with Shivananda Yoga before. And yeah. maybe just uh, to put it into context, I used to be a software engineer. I was really busy with software engineering. Right. Relatively successful. I earned quite a bit of money then. And um, at the same time, well, I had so much energy. <laughs> I, I was so, so like, I had so much energy. I could party every weekend. Maybe you know Berlin has been quite a remarkable techno scene. When the wall came down, I was 18 and it was just uh, mind blowing that, that time. But I had developed then since I was 18 until my late 20s kind of a habit of going out every single weekend and getting drunk and trying all sorts of stuff and so on. And then, but at the same time, I was somehow diligent enough to keep on with my work and so on, my projects. And so mm -hmm. it kind of went okay, but it was quite a fine line, I guess, just like one mishap. And I would have maybe ended up in a not so great situation because I was kind of dependent on that regularity of getting drunk and then partying and yeah, uh, it, well, Okay, but then, yeah. for whatever yeah, reason, yeah. one of my friends, one of my party friends, actually, he took me to a Shivananda yoga class. And that was an interesting experience. Um, yoga at that time in Berlin was really, well, like elderly women 
that we had just their kids out and we're seeking for a purpose in life. Yeah. <laughs> Olderly, yeah, yeah. Olderly. Older, older. Yeah. Older, so whatever. We had, same, we had the same thing in England. What, whatever, yeah. The British wheel of yoga, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, uh, and I was like, compared to that standard, I was very capable, of course. Also, I was very flexible by nature and rather loose, you should say, which was uh, not so great, ultimately, I had to realize. But my teacher really didn't know what to do with me after some time. And also, there was a lot of esoteric uh, stuff around the thing. The experience was great. I felt so wonderful after the class and really relaxed yeah. and so on. But then there was the chanting and like uh, Krishna chanting and uh, and then relaxation, two practices, another relaxation. And I was just too <laughs> full on with everything. So he, at some point, I think he was a little bit like, Grisha, I think you need a few more years for the real yoga. Do uh, <laughs> Ashtanga. And then, because he also practiced it. And then he brought me to this teacher who was in Berlin at that time. Yeah. yeah. And that class, my first Ashtanga class was full primary series. Uh, I barely survived. That's the time. You just, yeah, that, that is the thing, isn't it? And now people say, well, you know, you can barely teach a half primary now or level one or level two, you know, like with yeah. different levels. And at the time, it was just like, well, the Ashtanga class is you walk in, you do the primary series of what you can do or what you can keep up with, you know? Yeah, yeah. And if you survive, you go back the next time, you know? That that was how it was taught, right? Which is kind of, I think there's a bit to be said for both of the things, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. well, it wasn't was Mysore style, certainly. I mean, I really believe into the Mysore style because now I can really teach students who can handle more uh, i can teach them more and yeah there are really yeah. certainly people who cannot handle i started teaching rel relatively early because my teacher left for australia and so berlin was kind of left alone who with, is that that was um henriette um, she's not well known right. she lives in hamburg okay. and okay. so my teacher my shivananda teacher because he also practiced ashtanga he asked me if i could teach the class because i was somehow relatively capable and then I mm, took over mm. and I taught the same way and I invited all my friends hey give me a euro or two or three and then come on practice and I taught the primary series and I was wondering what's going on what are they doing there <laughs> why are they not able to do that so um, <laughs> and it turned out that not everybody loved being sore for three four days like me in the <laughs> after the first class I, oh, I was uh, horrified and I was looking forward for the next class so but not everybody is like that. So I think um, for me, it was really good. You, I mean, you you started in your early 20s, right? I started it when I was late, 19 late or something. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, we have to admit that it's a different, what you can do then is not the same as how you might approach it now, all right? Like give you 10 or 15 years. Absolutely. You wouldn't be approached, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you might not want the same things out of it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that's then how it started. I think everything was like super exciting and innocent. I was just practicing practicing wherever I could. Um, I was going to Prague very often. A friend of mine uh, started the Prague Ashtanga scene and uh, of his, um, um, he just moved to Prague. I think he met a girl or something. Yeah. He practiced Ashtanga right. and then he invited all sorts of teacher to, teachers to Prague. Nancy uh -huh. Kligo was there a couple of times and um, and Danny Paradise and, and th that kind of a scene. Yeah, yeah. So that was really cool because it was nearby. It was all low key. It was inexpensive uh, because either I had a lot of money when I was working or I had, well, I was saving money <laughs> when mm. I had no project. So that was really helpful. And it was, I think I hadn't met really enlightened 
people, but nobody claimed to be. And they were just sharing whatever they did and it was really absolutely innocent. And that was my understanding. Um, so that was also how I taught and so on. But of course, at some point, I wanted to see what's what's happening beyond. <laughs> what is it? Where is all this going? Um, mm. And that is, I think, where I the first... I you first teacher. Yeah, I mean... We, you learned the primary series of Henrietta and then she yeah. moved and then yeah. you started teaching like pretty early, right? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so like, you, you hadn't really had much teaching at this point. You were just simply, you learned the series and you just doing it and yes, you were yes. kind of your own teacher, I understand. Pretty much, pretty much. And then right. I, I went to these retreats uh, or trainings or workshops, which were kind of longer weekend workshops usually. And I uh, practiced as much as I could and I was very eager, give me more, give me more. And yeah, that's pretty much how I've learned. Mm. And, and then, of course, I've asked the teachers, okay, so who should I see? Who should I see? Where should I go? Right. And uh, in that bunch of people that I've met at that time, there was pretty much reservation about Mysore. Um, so, and I was, as I said, not really flexible, but I was very loose in my joints. And for some reason, I had the sense that if I go to Mysore, I would get seriously injured um, right. because people could fold me up into advanced postures, like just because my joints were so loose. And I felt it's not really <laughs> safe to be there, but somehow people could think easily that I was very advanced just because I was so little in my joints. So... And then I've heard other stories from Mysore, and then also the authorization business came up, and I didn't like these stories um, about Mysore so much. Um, and also, it wasn't on my path anyhow, so I thought, why not first study with the other teachers, with the senior teachers? So mm -hmm. I was, whenever somebody was in Germany, I traveled there. Eventually, I, I think 2004, I went to, um, to Thailand and practiced with Rolf for about for okay. a month or six weeks or two months eventually it was just so pleasant to be there it was so wonderful and so again so basic and just raw experience of the daily practice careless life and it was just uh, just a wonderful experience again yeah rolf is a, is a wonderful um and unique person absolutely well, we I mean, we must have met like around 2005 or six i'd say yep. um yep. in oxford when richard freeman came to oxford and then I had the understanding by that time that you knew Richard and had already been practicing a bit with him. And that's really, I'd say, is it, is it true to say he's your foremost influence as yes. a teacher? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So you wanna, right. So do you want to speak a bit about that and Richard? Because obviously I, I kind of felt, and I think it's maybe not so true these days, but there always felt to be a polarity between either you're going to Richard or you're going to Mysore in a way, right? And perhaps it's not so polarized these days. but um. It definitely struck me as a personal. I mean, I decided to go to Mysore, but <laughs> <laughs> and, but and, and you know, not not to say I don't study with Richard as well, but you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, speak, well, speak a little bit about Richard. Well, the, well, really, the background is that I started reading also the scriptures, and I could couldn't make really much of it. I knew it was great, but I wouldn't understand a thing. I tried to read all the commentaries I could. But it was all confusing and and chaotic, and there was no structure in it. I thought, okay, what's the whole point in it? So that was one way of trying to get more information about the meaning of the practice. So why should I practice for 30 years? And I have to say, some of the advanced teachers or senior teachers I've met, they were just like myself 30 years later, and they, were, they had the same flaws that I saw in myself. Fair and I enough. thought, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. why should I then 
invest so much energy if really because i i had the idea of yoga should make me somehow a better person and more generous and less egotistical and less aggressive with myself and with others and so on and well and i saw these uh, older teachers and some of them were just like hunting little girls i thought uh, i saw <laughs> and i found that absolutely inappropriate and so right i didn't find really the yeah so then um, yeah i think that that, that was I don't know, is, it, is it so much there these days it definitely was you know again like it was a thing you know that they're definitely at a point you know there was a lot of a lot of that around uh, yeah Maybe I should with say the current that also, culture, with the current culture, there's a, maybe a little bit more circumspection on, uh, <laughs> you know, affairs oh, with students. But you know. yeah, I mean, also yeah. this is perfectly fine. If um, I mean, I was like that. I saw it in myself, and I didn't like certain things about it. I was not like very strong. <laughs> like there were some people, like predators. I I thought I wasn't that, but oh, I saw Good. it. Yeah, so and, and, I, and I also <laughs> saw in the practice that um, part of the reason why I liked it so much is because it seemed very easy for me. I seemed very capable to myself. It seemed to impress others, and that appealed to my ego structure, which at the same time felt, at one point or in one way, felt really good. But it, the other, on the other hand, I saw I th I saw that well, it's really not how it should be, and then so the ego thing really well, tortured me a little bit. And I saw that in others, right. I saw it in myself. And somehow, um, I got somehow frustrated. I thought I wouldn't go to Mysore. I was too scared. And I, I also had the sexual things, stories back then and so on. Okay, right, right. So some people have seen that. They say, I didn't buy into it really because I had no no stock in, in Mysore. And I was just like, oh, somehow. And then I've met, I think, Patabi Joyce in London, shortly after i've met richard but richard really was recommended by a guy in berlin he's kind of a famous ashtanga practitioner peter greve he was also in my so yeah. with the, all the old Heard guys yeah yeah so it turned out that there were, were other ashtanga teachers but they weren't really appearing and uh, and um peter was living there with his wife nicole so that maybe comes later in the story but anyhow, at some point, I was practicing with Peter and Nicole, and we actually decided to open up Ashtanga Yoga Berlin. But I was also getting a little bit, well, disoriented. I wouldn't, I wouldn't find teachers where I could really get deeper into the, well, more philosophical meaning of yoga practice. And um, so Peter then said, well, I think, Risha, you have, to, you have met all of them. So you, I think you need to see Richard. Richard, I've met Richard like 15 years ago. And even back then, he was really kind of a crazy guy. <laughs> but I think you will love him. So I, I've just checked out. the, the I, Was there internet? I don't even remember. But somehow I found out, found out that there, uh, Richard is going to be in London, I think, just a week later. So I packed my stuff, went to London, and I was absolutely flashed <laughs> by his somehow completely different approach to, to everything that I've... Uh, uh, a thought I have heard before, everything, including the fundamental principles like Mula Banda and so on. I mean, it was just a mind-blowing experience. He taught with an Iyengar, former Iyengar teacher, Adil Palkiwala or something. Yeah, he might yeah, be an interesting still, person to interview, by the way. He's still around. Yeah. Um, I just remember meeting Richard, but I didn't get it, I have to say. I mean, 
subsequently, you know, mm. but it took, I don't think I was ready at the point, you know, I mean, I kind of felt when I first met Richard, I just kind of felt, well, why is he stopping us at Janine Shishasta A? Like, <laughs> you yeah. want to practice, you know, you want to practice and you're just like, oh my God, this is so slow. And, you know, yeah, I have to say for my sins, you know, I just, I, I, and then he would be so, he would be talking and then he would kind of go off on, you know, like, and they would kind of come back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have to say, I must have matured later to it than, than you did, because um, it took me a while to tune into his radio, as it were. I yeah. perfectly understand. I mean, mm. I was ready for it and I was somehow mm. looking for mm. it. And I've, I had mm. tried also learning from Orthodox Indian philosophy teachers and that wasn't my wavelength. They were just so so slow and so repetitive. And they were giving these same examples, the pot and the clay and the snake. And, the oh, yeah. and I was like, oh, yeah. goodness, I understand. Come on, tell me something. And Richard, with his Western type of uh, background, the philosophical background, and uh, the way how he uh, spaces out on these uh, topics, it just caught me somehow. And, it, yeah. and I, I had like the most amazing practice is just a few sun salutations with him. We're just like, wow, where was I before? What was I doing in my sun salutations? And so, yeah, that was really exciting. And in Oxford, actually, I was super, super nervous. And I finally asked him, so I've sent you this application for your training in Boulder. So, so what do you think? And he said like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Here I am. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that, was my <laughs> situation back then and so you yes, went to boulder i went to boulder in the, yeah, in the yeah. same year actually in i think two, yeah. 2006 six or five and yeah this this month was super intense but not as you have noticed not from a physical point of mm, view mm, but mm. we had to read every day for I don't, i don't know i was really just like reading through all these texts his homework was I, just a lot And uh, at the same time, I was very frustrated because he wasn't teaching my story. He was teaching his lead classes. And just like you, after a couple of days of lead classes and like the sun salutation, so slow and again and again, uh, at that point, I was still like, come on, teach me third season. I, I think it's natural when, you know, when you have the energy of youth, you know, and I was yeah. still the same now, if I, you know, what, what, what was it philosophically that grabbed you? What, I mean, yeah. Me, somehow, you're quite into the philosophy, I know. Um, yeah, somehow the um, the step from not so much knowing and trying to understand or learning mm. philosophy as a knowledge, but rather allowing the brain to follow the ideas that are behind. So following the idea of that, for example, whatever you look at is really just your projection. And of course, at first I thought like, no, I'm seeing the tree. And then somehow he made, over the few days and, and weeks and so on, the mind all of a sudden realizes, well, yes, it's very used to be seeing whatever it sees, but really it is not there. And somehow it worked on my, on, in my system. So that, was, that, was, that would have been enough, I think, to catch me. But then also by that time, I've been close to several injuries, I would say. In my practice and i thought right. i always thought this can't be correct yoga practice should not injure my body and uh, i had received of course that was the time several very strong adjustments that were really 
borderline and also not in uh, also myself i was so eager and so intense and i i would have been, uh, eventually injured myself but i i knew it wasn't correct so i tried a yengar i tried all sorts of things but also this doesn't didn't really work it was was too dry and then richard's approach of somehow linking everything to a completely different Mulabande experience. Um, maybe you remember in Oxford, one of his topics was um, Mulabande is not what you think. That completely I mean, blew my mind. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it blew my mind. Yeah. I was doing a technique, but I wasn't getting what was actually meant by the technique. And then somehow things opened up and I really had, since then I've developed a completely different understanding of Mulabande. It's it's absolutely has very little to do with the pelvic floor, just that the pelvic floor also goes online when you have it, but it's more a symptom rather than the cause of Mulavanda. That's the, these kinds of things I got from Richard and week by week, I would feel kind of Mulavanda more in every single cell. It sounds big, but really in my palms, in my mm. palate, you remember maybe these things. So, palate, yeah. so in this, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. This, so he healed my alignment and I felt much better in my practice and I was using much less effort. And so it just felt right uh, back then to, mm. to mm. practice that way. Just to give an idea of how you're teaching. I mean, how, I mean, do you want to explain like how you, how you relate to Mulabanda then and, you know, and how, you know, your emphasis, and just to give our people an idea, your emphasis on teaching is coming from this this background of, of Richard's teaching. How how do you approach teaching? Yeah, it's you know, my soul style without without the tough adjustments, and you know. Yeah, it's been quite and, a process. Uh, and the predatory nature. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been quite a process. Um, when I came back from my from my from Boulder, I was yeah. uh, of course everything was completely shattered i i mean i had learned the basic assists um that everybody was assisting and giving and uh, pulling here pushing there laying down on people pressing and doing all these kinds of nowadays i would think extremely gross things uh, and then i've but i've been to richard and richard was richard he was teaching richard being him and he was teaching lead classes and i wouldn't i didn't want to teach lead classes and i couldn't i tried to imitate him of course like so many do and i realized that's not me it's fake um i shouldn't do it <laughs> so it took hmm. me several years and really i at least 10 <laughs> to somehow develop a my sort type of teaching that is really how I felt what I felt when I practiced with Richards and how to mm. push, communicate this with my hands. So there, I could sum it up with, I'm not yeah. adjusting the pose to fix it and bring it into a certain position. I've tried to find out what am I doing inside of me that creates in what I felt a better position how would I do it if I were the student? And somehow over the time, my fingers, my hands learned finding spots that were maybe muscular insertions or lines of the muscles that I would just like activate that fixes the poses. For example, instead of twisting the arms when they seem to be mm. spun in, I'm just touching them lightly under the arms and all of a sudden the right muscles activate, which are kind of here, the serratus anterior muscles and so on. So I've kind of hundreds of those little, but they are intuitive. They are not really learned. So, mm -hmm. that, and then I realized, and the longer I do it, the more I realized I don't need any force in assisting, very rarely. And because if I use force, I either don't really know what I'm doing and I'm working against the student or the student is anyhow too hard, too stiff. 
But most of the time, there is an obstacle in the way. And very often, the obstacle is maybe the belly is pushing down and forward, or what else could be the obstacle? They, they are like, basically, yeah. the, the bandhas are not really in place. Um, but very oftentimes, the, po the obstacle I found is actually that the pose is constructed to be done incorrect by a beginner. That was a revelation I had just a few years ago. When looking at the first pose, just lifting the arms up, every single beginner mm -hmm. lifts up the shoulders and cranks the necks when looking up to the thumbs. So I thought if everybody's doing it incorrect, because it feels terrible after some time, so it's constructed to create that pattern. So I would have to understand what is the solution of that. And somehow for this pattern, and like for so many others, it's a lack of connection to the pelvic floor. So you need to create a train of muscles that somehow links via serratus anterior, maybe some abdominal muscles, all the way down to the pelvic floor, and then immediately feel it in the, in the palms and in it's, it's the same thing then. The, the Mula Bandha expresses itself in the hands and in good alignment, I would say. And that's... Hmm, mainly I'm in agreement with that. Um, so, so for you, Mula Bandha, it's nothing to do with the pelvic floor. It's just simply an awareness and a connection to the, the whole of the body. Is that right? I think Mula Bandha is something that is all-pervading or it's just an illusion. Right. If I, if I, just, mm. if I just activate the pelvic floor, uh, activate the pelvic floor, it's not Mula Bandha. But if I have hmm. good pose, all of a sudden my pelvic my pelvic floor is toned automatically. It's just hmm. it's just one thing. So hmm. even if you can feel it, even having the palms not not really right, perfectly placed on the floor in a down dog, maybe by hmm. allowing the index finger ball to come up, it's not Mulabanda is not really there. She's very shy, you could say. But even if you just fake it and press it down, it's not Mulabanda either. So it I don't know. It's either it's the cause and the symptom at the same time. It's the, it's actually a non-dual. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you kind of coax that out of someone? Sorry, how how do you how do you kind of coax that out of someone? You know. <sighs> well, I allow the intuition of the student to appear. It's it's hard to communicate how I teach that, mm, but mm. but. but I, for example, I would just then, if, if I, see, I see it, <laughs> if I see it in the person and they maybe press down on my, uh, with their index finger ball on my hand in, in, let's say, in a warrior pose, if they go too much in a backbend, then these muscles here open and there's no connection to the mula. So if I allow them to drop the front ribs, all of a sudden I can feel just like, how do you call this, where you press down on something and you feel the resistance? I can feel yeah, the yeah. floor. So, and then I let them feel, oh, do you feel that in the pelvic floor? That's funny, floor? so in Bhubha Jasana, you're getting them to press down on your hands. For example, and if they do it not That's perfect. Right. I do exactly the same. Then yeah. immediately I feel it's not connected. And if it's connected, I let them feel, okay, and feel that connection to the flo pelvic floor and find that in everything. So there are specific poses where it's really easy to point out that connection. And from there, that's how I learned it with Richard. It's just a logical step to find that here and there and there. And with time, of course, we are all developing eyes. We see that in students when it's lacking, when something seems disconnected. And with more and more poses, eventually I've, for myself, found more and more little tools that point out how to make it integrated and stable and sukha in, in the meaning of well-aligned, which is, in my opinion, the meaning of sukha. Or in Richards, he pointed that out. Uh, uh, maybe you've heard that suka actually means good hole. Su is good. Okay, yeah, ah, yeah. I think I've heard Richard. 
and it's it's just that. cool. Yeah. And so yeah. it's in the Yoga yeah. Sutra. <laughs> Stira, stable, and well aligned. That's the that's the rec basic requirement for asana practice. And the second requirement, and it later, it just I just realized it later, is that you have to reduce effort. Prayatna, the effort that is actually required to learn something that is ultimately stable and pleasant or stable and well aligned. There is initial effort. It's even, I think even the scripture says you need effort at first, but it has to be shaitilya. It has to be reduced over time. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so if you keep practicing with a lot of effort and aggression for years, I think it just shows there is a mistake in the practice. It should get light and easy. Yeah. Like the, there's an interesting verse in the Bhagavad Gita where it says, you know, yoga is, is uh, achieved by effort, but it's maintained by tranquility. Yeah. It's, uh, chapter yes. six or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Right. So, so, um, so you talk about, you know, kind of your own process and having like come close to injuries. I mean, well, you know, did you find, I mean, have you struggled with it, the injuries or how, how has your personal practice progressed had, with Richard's guidance? I had no injuries. I had right, actually okay. no injuries. I, I had an unstable knee for before I even started with yoga. I was very unstable, mm. as I said, in my joints, especially my ankle joints became much more stable with the practice, although I would have been very vulnerable in my initial um, lotus forms abused a lot of my structure in the ankle joints but with Richard's well, whatever how it corrected over time so my ankle joints got more stable and um, so and at some point also I stopped at a point and that was also maybe because of Richard's uh, path I got interested in other things I was somehow in the middle towards middle or end of third series um, when some poses really started to kick out my my vulnerable knee and that was the moment when I thought, well, it's not really and <laughs> what I want. I've met a teacher who was practicing fourth series and we had to run for a bus in Prague. And he said, I can't run. I'm practicing fourth series. And I was like, what? You can't run? <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, my knees are so unstable. And I was like, oh, uh, do I want to learn <laughs> from you any longer? So um, so I, maybe I'm too scared of pain or something. But oh, on the other hand, I didn't mind being sore all over the body, but I didn't like injuries really. So I stopped before mm -hmm. I got to that point. And also I had a practice that was really nice and it became nicer and nicer with time. My backbend alignment, which was just being super flexible in the lumbar spine, all of a sudden with more integration. Also, I have to say, Chuck Miller and Matthias Ratti helped me a lot of mm. uh, that, uh, uh, right. uh, uh, quite a lot in that uh, mm. respect to stay integrated in in vulnerable poses. So I was then. Yeah, you can't escape point. that with Matty. Yeah. So I was very happy with my practice. I could practice the primary series easily and the intermediate series easily. The first, I liked the arm balances of the third, and and the leg behind head was anyhow my hips just like a natural thing to do but i i couldn't see much coming up that really interested me also because i got so much into the philosophy i was so excited mm. about said right. Richard. so yeah that was yeah does, maybe the, does the philosophy integrate into practice or how does it relate to the practice itself does it have an inherent kind of correlation well, to the yoga asana. 
if you're asking me now, it's of course a different back then, I still wouldn't see the connection. How does it really relate? I wouldn't really understand mm. the the three uh, verses on on asana, which I find super logical nowadays. Uh, I of course wouldn't wouldn't even understand that part of the practice. And also, um, but but there was actually one of the problems I had. I was doing this asana practice that I somehow like because I liked myself about it and so on. My ego liked mm -hmm. it and I was good at it and so on. And I've met Richard uh, in his uh, group of in his field. He was just like the superstar and uh, I was learning from what I thought or who I thought the best and so on. So I felt very good and I've, I've, I was gaining more and more knowledge, but still I couldn't see what is said in the Yoga Sutra, how could this become true? And I'm answering these things now differently than I, I had just no answer back then, really. I was knowing more and more about it when I was studying with Richard. But have you met a person who has, by daily practice, achieved anything that is really mentioned in the Yoga Sutra? I haven't. I mean, this is parts of it, yes. Maybe we have become mm -hmm. more friendly a little bit, um, or, or minor things, or maybe more healthy. Some of us have not become even healthier. So No, or no more friendly. The answer is really that what is being promised to us by our yoga teachers? What is it actually? I mean, they, they tell us to practice every day, something that is very intense. And I found that very meaningful for me being me back then in, when I was 30, being super eager, very capable and full on. And so it caught my attraction. Had I practiced Shivananda, I would have stopped like after a few weeks or months for sure. So that was really good for me. But where is the progress? How do we ever go further? And who defines what is further? And then, really, there are so many opinions about yoga and so many vague ideas and philosophical uh, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, I want to feel it. When I read about samadhi, I want to, th there must be something about it. It must exist as a tool, I think. So, uh, then I thought, well, what, where, where do I, how, what is my goal? Where am I going? And where can I look for a goal? So, in humans, it was difficult to find or impossible. I could have become maybe like a Richard, um, a star traveling and impressing people. Uh, yeah, but uh, is, it, is this really what I want? Uh, is it worthwhile traveling around the planet, practicing sometimes or teaching asana to young, rich people all over the planet? And it didn't feel right to me. So. Then I realized, well, the only answers I can get are really in the Yoga Sutra and in the Bhagavad Gita. And if I don't understand how this is meant, then I have a problem because then I'm practicing something. It's kind of my ladder is leaning somewhere, but I don't even know if it's the right wall. Mm. That's interesting. I like the metaphor. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. well, I mm. didn't invent that. <laughs> it's <horrible. laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> from a kind of self-improvement book that I read when I, like I was 18 it, yeah. or so. But yeah, yeah you're yeah. climbing and you're climbing and you don't really know if the yeah. wall is really even worth it. You end up on a, on a concrete wall here and all mm. the way up the ladder. And so many people, I think, have climbed up that ladder. They arrive in the desert, but they have no way of going back because all the effort must have meant something. That's what I think is happening. So... I took it kind of the other way around and I tried to look for, okay, what is really the goal of yoga practice? And 
as soon as I started really to make whatever I read in the Yoga Sutra into some kind of a meaning um, and try to find out the context in which things are. And all of a sudden, the Yoga Sutra became so clear with the, and also as, as you start teaching it, it's very, it's built up very logically. It starts with the, uh, with the Samadhi as a technique. And I think it's kind of at the end of the chapter when Patanjali was explaining it and he realized his students were not even ready for uh, to see the different, the subtle difference of the, of the various layers of samadhi. So he said, well, okay, you need a tool, you need a sadhana. So the second, second chapter is then really clear about what is actually the path. And the path is overcoming avidya. It's uh, ignorance. So not seeing mm. things as they are, thinking uh, that something that is for example permanent which is actually impermanent and vice versa and all these things and i thought well this is actually what richard was teaching to me all the time but i just didn't <laughs> read it and so the whole sadhana pada is introduced by saying so what is what is this sadhana about well you and what you, you use kriya yoga so what is kriya yoga kriya yoga is a part of the niyamas the first maybe you have noticed um and it says Kriya Yoga is for bringing, for reducing the kleshas and for bringing forth samadhi. And ultimately, if you continue with that, you realize that, oh, the only thing that brings samadhi is Ishvara Pranidhanat. Wow, surrender to Ishvara. And I was so atheistic, anti-theistic, that I've always ignored everything that had to do with Ishvara. Because I thought, well, okay. it was translated as the Lord, and, uh, and whoever believes in some kind of a Lord must be completely nuts. Until I realized that I just misunderstood the, the meaning of Ishvara. And then picking up the book again, I all of a sudden opened the first chapter again, which I've just skipped all the time, and read about the meaning of Ishvara. And then I translated the Sanskrit term Ishvara. And all of a sudden, it wasn't an abstract God as I understood from my perception of what is church and what is God and there's a guy with mm. a beard and a guy. Mm. There is nothing in that. It's just surrendering to an ideal type of purusha, which is, of course, always ideal and always pure, but that's kind of a little secret trick in that. And so you surrender not only to that idealized form of yourself, because purusha is the self in you, um, but... Um, but you also surrender to something, and Ishwara is, you can translate it as the rule or the commander or the rule giver. The, the, and I would translate it as the laws of nature or the all-pervading, the everything around us. So I realized that whatever I practice must be serving the Ishwara, basically serving the other, which is very logical because... Avidya requires overcoming your ego structure. And what I see in modern yoga and what I saw in myself was I was actually serving my ego. I was trying to become mm. a better practitioner. I tried to impress other people with my knowledge, with my capabilities. And I thought that's a problem. On that path, I can yeah. never get out of it. How would yoga look? Was how would yoga seem? How would, you, how would a yoga practice be if you practiced it from a different perspective? Well, it's it's not really. I th I think the the practices are designed to show you when you practice without without donating all your actions to a, a bigger picture. You would injure yourself. You will injure others. You will create structures of dependency, of power, 
of money relationships and so on. So all these, I think, are signs that you're actually not serving the big thing, everything, but you're really creating a distinction between yourself and others, which creates all these, I think, unhealthy relations or relationships. So how does it look like? You, do, you, you look like the same, you practice exactly the same, but you unlearn being proud about whatever you do. And you unlearn uh, the motivation of trying to impress others maybe at workshops or so on. That would be an approach. And how do, we, how do you teach that? I have no idea because I was not taught that way. I was taught in a mm -hmm. way like we were all taught since childhood. You are a better person if you practice the primary series and you practice it super good and then you learn the second series and the third series. It's all attracting the ego, which I think, I think is absolutely necessary. Otherwise, because we are so conditioned on that pattern. Mm -hmm. But where is the path out? Where do we take the student? Where do we teach the student as soon as possible, I think, uh, mm. to, 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 to show them the emptiness of that path. I suppose my question is, I think it's necessary to, I always say it's like, it's a hook, it's an obvious hook. Everyone likes tricks, yep. tricks are fun and, and impressive to others. And that's nice enough. Um, and, but you know, at a certain point it has to gravitate to something deeper. Um, but then how do you make that leap? Certainly with a student who you've given some nice tricks to, and you know, and you know, the idea of physical progress is alluring, right? And yeah, at what point and how do you shift that to point to something deeper than that? Because obviously, that can't go on forever in that same way. You know, it does in the end plateau at best. You know, in the worst, yeah. it leads yeah. to injury or disappointment or you know, competition and struggle and suffering, etc. But it's hard to shift the gears, isn't it? It's is it shift? Yes, it's hard as long as we have no teaching. And that is, so to say, my criticism, that there is very little awareness even on the problem that um, we all know that we are going to lose everything at some point. Um, we are getting older, we are getting injured, as you said. So there is definitely an end. And so how I do it is just one approach. And I'm just learning how to do that. It, it is, of course, it is influenced by Richard, of course, because I've learned that through his way of teaching. So I think the only way that uh, the, the eye-opening approach that I got from Richard was basically learning how to chant, getting into the Sanskrit, reading all the texts, and then his specific brilliance of making somehow also fun in all this and excitement in these kind of mind in these constructed stories and beautiful images and with lots of humor and so on. So, mm. and telling also the yoga philosophy that can appear dry in a way that is very appealing and very interesting and also uh, confronting yourself with your own ignorance, I think. And I think, yeah, I think that's important. I mean, it has to, when people are kind of confronted with this yoga philosophy and for a lot of people, you know, it's, it's maybe not their thing, you know, but it's still pertinent. I think it still can be made appropriate. It's, you know, it's a question of application, isn't it? And I know you teach it quite a lot, and you you know you're quite interested in the yoga philosophy and teaching it. How do you how do you approach that to make it relevant to people? Oh well, how do you start? What's the first What's the first teaching? When what's I, the basic premise. Well, this is of course not happening in the Mysore room, right? Um, in the Mysore room, if for example, if somebody comes in who has a solid Ashtanga practice and they're full on, the first thing is really bring them out of self-injury patterns that 
oftentimes happen in Ashtanga. I mean, we all know that. So that's the first step. Then if they eventually trust me, <laughs> which is very important, then they will maybe coming to one of my retreats or maybe one of my lectures that I do just rarely in Berlin uh, because it needs so much more time to get really a topic in all its facets. But usually people then come to the retreat and then they are caught for seven days with me and I can then really build up and I can explain the structure of the Yoga Sutra and, uh, and I'm trying to make them really excited about it, that it's not a dry thing to learn about, but it's really something when they, after the classes, walk around the seminar buildings and the farms and so on, where, just, where they can just experience, well, okay, what if I just try to see everything fresh and so on. So I'm trying to first, in theory, give them the idea of what yoga really means, which is really just perceiving reality as it is, in my opinion. That's the key quality of... Right. Yeah, so I'm, in theory, explaining this. I'm giving lots of examples. And, and then day by day, I think people <laughs> buy into the story and get excited about it. So that is my approach. I would okay. Say. Just in the, in the, you know, kind of for the reason of uh, simple debate, what clarify what reality as it is is. Mm. What is that, and why do people want that rather than reality as they fancy seeing it? Yeah. So, um, what we always see because we are conditioned since early childhood, and it's not a mistake, I think. It's 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 as natural and it's as divine as everything else. But we have learned seeing reality or package reality into practical names uh, and forms that we have stored for recognizing. We recognize a tree just by just like briefly seeing it. We know it's a tree immediately, or we know a piece mm -hmm. of bread, or we need we we know wood. We we know all these kinds of things. We have all these mm -hmm. labels, yeah. which is completely yeah. uncritical. It's you would say it's aklishta. It's not a, it's it's correct knowledge, maybe, and it's not harmful. But it's harmful, for example, if there is a different layer of that. For example, if you have a specific relationship with your tree or your uh, something, your piece of gold, or uh, these kinds right. of things. Or if you have, for mm. example, likes and dislikes. For example, you may have eaten some kind of a cabbage in your early childhood and at that moment it was really not what your body liked or needed and it rejected the bitter taste it was really not the right thing so you developed a dislike for something although in different situations it would be really good for you to eat that cabbage or the other way around you in early childhood maybe you had very low sh blood sugar level and you got the first time in your life a piece of chocolate and your nervous system goes like wow this is the best stuff ever and so you have an attachment to something that will follow you all your life and the more often you fulfill that kind of a, an attachment that is not really about the chocolate there's nothing special in the chocolate it was just in that spe specific situation where it was really maybe good for you <laughs> um, but it's not good in all situations and as long as we are driven by these uh, by not seeing the chocolate as just a substance that has has lots of sugar and it has this and this function and really retasting it every time and say, do I really need this now? No. Or like drinking alcohol. When I was young and insecure, alcohol really helped me. Was it good even 10 years later to have the same game? No. So seeing things as uh, as they are is first of all decouple seeing that you are acting from a conditioned place in many ways 
and then seeing things as they are even goes beyond that is even realizing that when you see something a piece of chocolate your neighbor has a completely different mindset about that about that chocolate or about ch chocolate in general and that is true for everything so when i think i communicate with you about yoga we are not we are talking like in opposite directions because you have a completely different bouquet of ideas and sensations and stuff like that it's it's amazing that we can even communicate because on like about everything our actually internal representation will differ so much and we have to realize that because if we don't see that we are actually constantly potentially in a conflict with the world and i think that is the root cause ultimately for all conflicts because we are talking about different things really or different values that are behind these things so i think samadhi is the technique of drilling into everything that you observe into every single object and decouple the essence of what you're observing from your input or your superimposition onto that I think that's well, that is described in the third chapter where you use concentration, meditation, and samadhi together as a tool for analyzing reality with all the weird side effects, with all the cities that come along with that. So that is, I think, what we should learn, in my opinion, from the yoga practice, this ability, deconstructing our fake reality, so to say. And isn't there an inherent yoga that everyone finds? You know, a concept that is, I mean, when you say we're talking about different things, are we stuck in this kind of postmodern liberal world where everyone, you know, kind of thinks and feels a different thing? Or is there some unified experience that we actually, a pre-existent one that we're actually kind of finally coming to clarify ourselves and drop into? There may be, but not on the way we communicate because what what is yoga nowadays who defines what is yoga and i had i've come to the conclusion that only patanjali can define or these ancient texts on prior texts and so on can really define what yoga is and when we teach something i think we must bring this in in line with the original definitions otherwise we we would say well there's like old type of yoga re Either you say it real time, real yoga, or you say it's ancient yoga. It's not valid anymore. Now we have modern yoga. It's better, uh, but there must be a distinction. But I don't think it makes any sense because what I'm what I'm personally interested in is is this amazing idea of being able to see things really as they are and to at least get closer. I think it's like a carrot, at least get closer and closer to to an ideal where I really communicate with not another anymore, but understanding that we are in fact one. That is the ideal for me. And I think that's what all yoga teaching, in my opinion, should be aiming at. That's, that would be where we should go, I think. That's right. But that's very, that's very esoteric. Um, and may, and I, th it's, it's, I think it's only for enthusiastic practitioners who have gone quite a while uh, to find really interested inter interest in that kind of stuff. There are also younger students I have that who find that. Mm -hmm. really, but normally people have gone through uh, their path and have ruined their body a little and then have made their experience and maybe have come to the point where, okay, well now, Atta, I need some more. 
Yeah, I mean, also people would usually rather, you know, most of us rather be defined by our preferences and likes and dislikes and individuality rather than be defined um, by kind of oneness, right? I mean, that's a frightening yeah. concept and uh, and kind of most um, most un- un- unwanted by most people, who, you know. I it's mean, scary, we yeah. usually want to... Co- you know, we usually want to increase our desires, not uh, not get rid of them. You know, if we like chocolate, we want to find ten different types of chocolate to like, rather than think, well, actually, the root of the liking probably wasn't in the chocolate. You know, like yeah, but then if you find point. that the root of all your liking isn't in the thing itself, that that's a disappointing place to potentially arrive at. So uh, it's a place that a lot of people don't want to. Um, I I wanted to kind of, but you know, before time, the time is running out of it. I wanted yeah. to question you on your your interest in um, uh, you know, kind of um. How would you say? Uh, I want to say social radical um, change, <laughs> but that's not quite right. I mean, you you yeah. mentioned uh, when we talked previously this podcast on um, you know about climate change and, and kind of you know yeah. uh, it seems like you you feel that there's that there's a sense of um, how do you call it um, unity or, or um, correlation between the practice of yoga and you know uh, a degree of social consciousness or well, conscientiousness. Is that is that right? Well, if we if we accept the authority of the Yoga Sutra, it's mm. right in the center of it. It's right there. Um, the, mm-hmm. the Yamas are considered to be the Mahavratam, the great vow. So the great yeah. vow of yoga is never to vi- never violating ahimsa or never causing himsa, killing ultimately or um, suffering. And uh, it's not to, ha- we should not violate, we should not be untruthful. We should not, um, uh, and, uh, and all these five, we shouldn't, uh, we should follow Brahmacharya and we shouldn't grab around Aparigraha and so on. So this is the great vow of yoga. And Patanjali is very clear. Any violation of that path will have endless suffering as, as a result. And the great vow is at, for everybody anywhere in the world at any time. So the, this, this, uh, read it again and again. It is so strong that I would say if you as a practitioner or a teacher violate any of these rules, I think it's not yoga. Otherwise, he would not have pointed it out so strong. And from that perspective, I would say that if you understand something about yourself that violates these, of course, nobody's perfect. I'm not perfect. But I see those and I try to see, of course, the biggest problems uh, first. I try to solve them. I try to see where, why, where is it coming from? Of course, it's all coming from ignorance. Well, it's easy said, but why do I need that? What makes me, for example, unsatisfied with where I am, for example, in the winter in Grey Berlin? What, what makes me unsatisfied <laughs> here? Well, it's maybe just past memories from Thailand that make me unsatisfied. We have a beautiful country and even the winter time has its beauty. It has its darkness, but we are complete by definition. The Purusha is always complete. And whatever we try to satisfy with, like, for example, a trip to India or a trip to Thailand is a, tr- a satisfaction of the ego structure. It will go away as soon as we return. It will not give, give us permanent uh, happiness. So it's followed oftentimes by depression. So we have tried that again and again. It always, as it says in the Yoga Sutra, leads to suffering. So what to do about it? Uh, or what is the consequence? The consequence uh, regarding traveling started to come up at one the last retreat I went to with Richard, I was sitting in upstate New York in a beautiful retreat center um, in the middle of the Catskill Mountains, beautiful at a pool, super nice, everything perfect. And I felt wrong. I felt somehow 
What is, what am I doing here? I just flew around the planet. I knew already five years ago that uh, it wasn't as good as we thought uh, with the climate and our leaders were not doing what they should have done. So I thought maybe that's not that great that a hundred practitioners are flying around the world to be with one teacher and for a week and just for actually really serving their short-term happiness. That's what I felt. So from that point, I've, I met a few people that I found inspiring in really taking these thoughts further. Interestingly, the person who told me about the workshop, who also went, a student of ours and a teacher of ours, she, she had become very radical quickly after that thing, but she actually made me fly my last long-distance flight. <laughs> so anyhow, like... And I saw her and, I, and I, then I looked at my children and I read more about the climate change and I was just shocked. What have we done? And so I now say that flying directly and indirectly kills endless numbers of beings. So it's a violation of, of Ahimsa. Absolutely. The, the output of an airplane is, of CO2 is so high you wouldn't imagine. It's one of the largest problems that we have. Only a few hundred million uh, people fly on the well, plane. We had, we had it. We don't have yeah. it right now. Yeah. Maybe so, we won't have it again. So, so you're, you're going to be stuck in Grey Berlin forever after, aren't you? Can, but, you, get on a, can you get on a boat? But if you, I'm not happy, I won't be much happier than anywhere else. Of course, it's okay to travel, but not if it has the consequence that my children will suffer or that children now in India or in Africa suffer because we keep heating up the planet. I think we have no right for enjoying the money that ultimately we have stolen from them uh, 100 and 200, 300 years ago, we have no right of abusing our the money that we have basically, it's just interest of the interest of the interest of the money that we have stolen eventually and the values. So I think we have no right of doing that. It is himsa. And it's not very truthful either. If I fly to Brazil and teach a teacher training there, people will follow me like dozens because, oh yeah, it's not only Grisha, it's also in Brazil. Oh, that's most <laughs> incorrect. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's on a beautiful beach. It's, it's amazing. So, but if they want to learn yoga from me, they can learn that anywhere. They don't need to travel. If they were really into the yoga, they would go study with me anywhere. So that's what I thought. Well, okay, then it's, it's just not doable. The amount of CO2 is just not explainable to our children. And if they ask me in 10, 20 years, what have you done? What am I going to answer? Well, I knew it, but of course, I mean, hello, Thailand is so great. How could you not travel? How can you not, how can you stop doing that? But that's what's happening. And, and then mm -hmm. I've founded these Yogis for Climate Justice with a few people, um, hoping that, well, I, I mean, reading your own CO2 footprint and then seeing what you're doing, how many people you make travel. I thought that a Richard or so would just easily speak up and say, well, hey, we have done that. We have really created great destruction on the planet, great harm. But now we have realized that, of course, we stop and please don't follow our path. It was not right to do that. It didn't happen. People, mm. as soon as Corona is over, people will start flying again. And I know enough in the meantime about climate change that it is the end. It will, it, will, it will really cause a lot of suffering if we don't, everybody who can, puts the brakes. Mm. Mm. And yeah, I'm not very optimistic that this will happen because the ego is so strong. 
I was hoping that yogis would be the first. And whoever hears this, please contact me and let me know that I'm not alone. There are teachers uh, I've I've now met. And you meant well, you mentioned you've got an organization, Yogis for Climate Justice. Is that is yeah? It was in yeah. It's an organization. It's just a couple of people <laughs> who who thought maybe okay. best we we <laughs> it's like two okay. people who don't want to fly to Thailand. No, we are like we are five <laughs> you, you or and so. someone else. <laughs> yeah, we are a couple, like five or so. We have contacted a few more, and we wanted to contact more and more teachers and influencers and so on. And we thought mm. maybe that yoga could become a wave of change, actually, of living really regional and uh, content with already the the wealth that we have i mean it's it's irrational anyhow why do we need to expand this and i'm, I'm actually i mean i'm you know I'm, I'm i'm kind of having a laugh but i'm i'm with you on this um i just think it's it's bloody unlikely uh, to put it frankly um i think that you know it's easy to kind of philosophize when it's theoretical but when you apply practical uh, you know knowledge of the sutras to your life that 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 applying the sutras practically to one's life is pretty damn radical, you know. It is, I mean, it's some serious, serious yeah. changes you're going to do, right? I mean, yeah. Absolutely. I don't think it's I mean, that radical. I think it's a step by step process. Start step by step. I think you won't convince most people to stop flying. Uh, we have to. There is no alternative. I think we won't, but there is no alternative. Either we do and we have a chance, or we don't and we don't. So, and if more and more, and it's not that unlikely. Are, you can come. You can come and see me. I'm I'm in south of France now. You can probably get overland to the south of France sometime. Yeah, no problem. We have good we have we have good weather down here. Yeah, um, you know I love the trains. Yeah. It's super nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Come, but I will not. I will not fly any longer. And no, that's very uh-huh. noble. I mean, incredibly. And, so, um, and I think it is important to to spread it out from the yoga mat to make more serious decisions. I mean, how are you, for example, on the on the food thing? I mean, I'm very. Just did a podcast with Mary, recently yeah. Mary Taylor, in fact, yeah. on on food and ethics and food and etc. I mean, what, what's what's your feelings about you know just in terms of obviously we have the food miles idea for the local thing and what about the vegetarian? Are you are you how's your diet? What, well, the thing is, this is very easy for me because I I decided to become or to be a vegetarian. I think when I was a baby, I spit out the meat okay. my food, and when I was about ten. And my grandmother tried to convince me every single time, hey, you need meat, you need meat. I wouldn't eat it. And at, I think, 10, 12 or so, I decided to not eat any meat, not even the salami on, on my pizza any longer. I just didn't like it. So that was... So, but we, ha- we have to make sure something, and that was one of the goals of the climate, Yogis for Climate Justice. We have to put things into scale. Nowadays, there is a big stream of people who think, well, I'm a vegan and I'm superior just by being a vegan. And I'm also climate, great for climate. Uh, And then they drink their super smoothies with cashews and avocados and so on. And they are, in fact, worse by the footprint than a regional meat eater. So it's not really an easy answer. I would never eat meat. But if if you live in Russia... Right. So we have to put everything into context. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at just your CO2 footprint, a flight is that, and that is your meat, your, your food decision. So first things first, as long as you're here and just a couple of flights then easily goes to here, and this is your food decision. So um, the scale matters and you can fix thousands of things and they would never accumulate up to the flight. Two, three flights a year is beyond <laughs> everything together what you do so 
that's why we are so focused on the flying because you can people get obsessed with so many details and reduce everything to just yeah i'm doing this right so i'm doing everything right and mm. it's not enough anymore we have got we have all gone through there and especially in our scene who is not a vegetarian at least and the step from vegetarian to vegan to have a good vegan diet is very difficult i think I don't know. I think increasingly so people aren't vegetarian, actually. I think it's start, I mean, to be quite honest, my reflection is that people generally back in the day were, but I think now, not, I don't necessarily think now. I think people are more open to practicing yoga and eating meat as well. I don't mind. I wouldn't judge anybody on eating meat, but a mm. frequent flyer is, is a threat to my children. Right. Okay. Yeah. So because we have, what about the? I mean, the farming of meat, etc., is a bit is a bit of a threat, isn't it? Really, it is terrible. I mean, yeah, meat yeah. production, just the term yeah. in German, is horrible, mm, mm. and the circumstances are I mean, horrible. We've gone to so the animals themselves. Do yeah. not eat meat. But yeah. if you live in in let's say, Siberia and you have a cow and you treat it well and you eat it at the end of the life, if you're living, yeah, no we have. If, if you're listening to this podcast and living in in the mountains of Tibet, you're welcome to. <laughs> At least eat meat, and you definitely can't fly, so no worries there. Um, well, Squisha, just to wrap it up, can you just um, give a? I always ask this question: Can you give um, uh, an inspiration, something that really inspires you, and uh, a guilty pleasure? Not flying, obviously, um, but another guilty pleasure that you're happy to be guilty of. Um, yeah, an inspiration, and 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 then just something that you like that you know will give a rounded idea of you, you outside the yoga, and you know. Hmm, <laughs> that's really tough pleasure, uh, tough, tough question. I can't really answer it. I mean, maybe my most guilty pleasure is that I like going to the sauna. Oh, that's a, so that works. Yeah, so right. okay. it's it's yeah. highly it's terrible. they have them they have them in Berlin, do they? Like, oh yeah, we have lots of saunas. It, oh, it's a popular thing, is it? I didn't know that. It's very is popular, it? and oh, okay, it's very energy intensive. We have I've set up solar panels on our little house and. I've built my own sauna that runs on solar energy. <laughs> so at least at least that, but I, I feel a little guilty about it because it is a lot of energy that should rather be fed into the system, into the grid. But I'm trying to use it only in the middle of the day when the sun is high up and it's excessive <laughs> energy anyhow, but it is a problem. Um, right. So yeah, that's my advice. Yeah. Oh, you should feel very guilty about that, yeah, <laughs> taking all that energy from the grid. That's no, that's 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 uh, that's a relatively uh, unguilty pleasure as they go, I'd say. And what about your what about your inspiration? What what a what it could be a person, a place, or a a book, or anything that comes to mind. Just a, yeah. Hmm. Honestly, the inspiration, my biggest inspiration, is really thinking things through. L thinking about my children, how they will grow up, how they will experience future, and try to do the best I can um, to make it not as grim as it looks like currently. It's not a very positive inspiration, but really this is what is now the point where I really have to make tough decisions. And one of the decisions is really to stop yoga, because if I find out that yoga is not working for that purpose, I have to do something else. And because that is far more important than teaching young rich people how to bend their bodies. So 
But it is an inspiration also to try to use the yoga and because it has all the potential. If we just start, it's it has the potential of transforming people. It has transformed me. I'm very sure about that. So an inspiration could also be trying to make this into a more methodological approach to reach more people, to get to talk to people like you, and maybe again, talk to Richards and to talk to other people, because I think we can make a change. And if we only change 10, 20, 30% of all people, it will become hopefully a wave. So whoever feels like supporting that idea, please contact me. Uh, mm. it's, okay. It's not very so nice. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been really nice to talk to you after many years. And yeah. Um, if you want to uh, contact Rishi, you can find him at Ashtanga Yoga Berlin. Is that right? Ashtanga Yoga Berlin dot Berlin, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Grisha okay. Yoga there. Okay. Not Grisha. Grisha. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks, Grisha, for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you. Super. Thank you very much. Thank you.